hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 147, The March to Moscow, part one. To the north, Leningrad was surrounded, cut off from Moscow. To the south, Kiev, the same, while Axis forces further south were on their way to the Crimea. Now was the time, Hitler reasoned, to drive on Moscow, take the city from Stalin and end this phase of the war, if not the whole contest, before winter proper set in. That was the plan. But the Soviets had their own plans. Still, Germany's Operation Typhoon, the seizure of Moscow, would start out with the third largest assemblage of German might in Nazi history just behind its invasion of France and the Low Countries, and Barbarossa itself. And leading this massive, hopefully war-ending assault, would be one man, Field Marshal Fedor von Bock. Under him would be 75 divisions, of which 47 were infantry and 14 were panzer. In total, three of Germany's four panzer groups, and just over 2 million men. Supporting those men and the more than 1,500 panzers would be 1,000 aircraft. The idea, the plan, the hope, was for this reinforced Army Group Center, or Army Group Bok, to encircle and then smash the center of the Soviet's defensive line in front of Moscow, and then get in behind the city itself. Of course, in front of the Germans were some 3 million Soviet troops, To be sure, they were less trained, less experienced, less organized, hence less professional. But they were fighting for their homes, their families, their country. And Hitler knew, along with his generals, that this would be a bloody series of battles. They had already lost, by October 2nd, the date Operation Typhoon was to be launched, some 185,000 soldiers. Dead, not wounded. Yet the spirits of the generals were high, their men doing the fighting less so. They just wanted to get it started, so it could be over, so they could go home. They had already seen, even in the face of their victorious deflections of Soviet counterattacks, far too many of them, more death and loss than they could imagine. And Stalin, still in Moscow, knew losing his capital was a possibility. No matter what Marshal Grigory Zhukov said, when the leader asked the marshal, are you sure that we will hold Moscow? I ask you about this with a pain in my soul. Tell me truthfully, as a communist. Zhukov answered bluntly, as he mostly did, we will, without fail, hold Moscow. But it's possible that the questioner had a different perspective than the one who answered. Zhukov had already learned from defending Leningrad up to now that he did not have to beat the Germans, just keep them from reaching Moscow. And even if they did reach the city's edge, invading and holding the city was another matter. But even so, Stalin, the realist, the pragmatist, these temperaments had gotten him to where he was today, still planned on losing here. Another city, Kuibyshev, some 800 kilometers further east, was designated as a replacement capital. Not even two weeks into Typhoon, 
the Soviets began moving several ministries there, which meant that the fighting would go on, the resistance would continue, which flew in the face of what Hitler was trying to do. And yet, there were those non-Russians who, through their work, by spending time in the country, mostly in Moscow, more than agreed with Zhukov. Jeffrey Wilson, the third secretary of the British Embassy, wrote at the time Typhoon commenced that, One of my nightmares is that if the Russian armies are eventually successful, as I think they will be, they will end this war by marching to Berlin and occupying all points of Europe East. And then how are we to get them out? There is going to be a most unholy row between us when things are over. Uppermost in the minds of those on both sides was the Russian winter. But even before the freeze came, there would be the Rasputista, the changing of the seasons, where the roads, as bad as they were, would become quagmires of mud. This happened each fall and spring, but it was the fall that now concerned both sides. First, there would come the mud. Then it would freeze, making travel possible. But then would come the true winter. So Operation Typhoon had limited timetables to achieve its goals. Again, all Zhukov had to do to win was delay. With this knowledge of the Russian weather, but probably in a limited way, Typhoon would be carried out in two phases. During the month of October, the panzers and mechanized infantry, with planes zooming overhead, would smash into the Soviet defensive lines, with the infantry following as fast as they could, and encircle large sections of the Russian forces, thus negating their ability to stop further advances. Then, as the mud began to freeze and supplies and reinforcements were brought up, box forces would move forward again, the idea being to spend the winter in Moscow. And yet, there were those within the OKH who, even before Typhoon was launched, had a hard time seeing how this war could be ended by the end of the year. The men in the field weren't even prepared for a winter campaign. So, should it come to that, and how could it not? Even in victory, how was this to exactly play out? Yet, overall, confidence was high, if not vague. For coming at Moscow would be two panzer groups under Colonel General Hermann Hoth, his panzer group 3, and Colonel General Heinz Guderian, his panzer group 2, and Hopner's panzer group 4 from Armour Group North, and units from Colonel General von Kleist's panzer group 1 from Armour Group South. In total, 14 panzer divisions and 8.5 motorized divisions, simply the greatest collected force of German mobile forces, ever. But these are units on a tally sheet, not numbers. When the two new panzer divisions joined Bach, the 5th and the 2nd, just before Typhoon, they brought with them 450 tanks, being at full strength, because they had, as yet, not seen any action. As for Bach's 12 other panzer divisions already with him, they had, among them, just 750 operational tanks. Such had been the price to get this far. 
Yet it was in these panzers that the Germans had placed their hopes. Technology had given them their successes to date. But machines do not operate well in mud or when covered in dust. And even before cylinders seize up from the penetrating dust, the engine's oil uses increases mightily, which demands one focus on logistics. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With the Soviet roads being what they were, the invaders would have to rely on the Soviet rail system, but it was different than Germany's. So, a carriage could not simply be placed on the enemy's rail line and continue on its way. Soviet rail gauges were wider, but this had been planned for. Special rail conversion teams would approach a secured section of rail, pull up the spikes, move the rails closer together, and then drive the spikes back into the ground. Simple, straightforward, but not in war. Besides, the Soviet Air Force would demonstrate that they were not completely out of the war in the coming days of Typhoon and harass these rail teams, thus slowing down their work considerably. But more than that, as the Soviets retreated, they had destroyed their rail systems and their stations, along with everything else. So the Germans would find themselves having to reinvent the wheel, as it were, and adjusting the gauges. Suddenly their work was more than doubled. But still, the Germans were hopeful, even optimistic. Yet Barbarossa had already shown that it would be impossible to supply an ever-advancing army, much less one of millions of men and thousands of machines, that far away from Germany and that close to Moscow. To be sure, there were other panzers sitting in Germany, but Hitler refused to let them join in on Typhoon. He believed that Bach had what he needed to reach and hold Moscow. The Russians would run. Of course, that was not what had been demonstrated so far. It was the same situation with trucks. Barbarossa had started off with some 600,000 motorized vehicles, and by the time of Typhoon, some 200,000 had been lost. What did Hitler replace them with? 3,500 trucks. 
Army Group Center had by this time lost 74,000 men. They were replaced by 23,000 men. The same weakened numbers applied to the Luftwaffe. So one can see that Hitler truly needed a victory before the end of the year, before winter proper arrived. But even ignoring the facts already stated, the Germans truly did not believe, could not believe, that the Russians, because Nazism was superior to all other forms of government, were their qualitative equal in weaponry. The KV heavies could more than match the heavy panzers, and the Soviets could make more of them faster. The armament family of Krupp in Essen had the reputation of making the best cast steel in the world, but the Russians had their own cast steel, could hold their own in tank design, and were producing theirs just miles away. Again, Moscow had to fall soon, and the war had to be won soon. But what Berlin could not know was that, as Typhoon got underway, Bach's forces constituted some 60% of Germany's might in the east. As for the Soviet forces before Moscow, this was only 40% of what they had to hand. So, outgunned and outmanned, with the territory before them spreading out the further east they went, the Germans attacked. The Russians stood ready with 2,715 tanks, 20,580 guns, which was more than what Bach had, and had the same number of men, some 3.2 million soldiers. To compensate for these deficiencies, Hitler had the superiority of Nazism. During the night of October 1st, mere hours before Operation Typhoon was to commence, Hitler issued a statement that was to be read to the men of the Eastern Front. Soldiers, when I called on you to ward off the danger threatening our homeland on 22nd of June, you faced the greatest military power of all time. In barely three months, thanks to your bravery, my comrades, it has been possible to destroy one tank brigade after another belonging to this opponent, to eliminate countless divisions, to take uncounted prisoners, to occupy endless space. You have taken over 2.4 million prisoners. You have destroyed or captured 17,500 tanks and over 21,000 guns. You have downed or destroyed on the ground 14,200 planes. The world has never seen anything like this. What he did not say was that, and yet, they, the Russians, were still in the fight. Hitler went on to say that everything was going according to plan, and now it was time to deliver a deadly blow. Today, the last great decisive battle of this year begins. At 5.30 a.m. on October 2nd, box artillery opened up on the Russian defenders closest to them. Soon after, German bombers flew overhead to attack further behind the lines. Then the panzers moved out. Hitler had ordered two major thrusts towards Moscow, but Bach took advantage of Kiev being taken out of the fight and added a third thrust, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group, which would start from a distance northeast of Kiev to the south of the main assault on Moscow and make its way east 
towards Orel. If this worked, the threat from German forces would be that much wider, and more for the defenders to guard against. Specifically, the Germans were hoping to encircle the Western Front, placed in front of them, then to do the same thing to the Reserve Front, just behind the Western Front, while smashing the Bryansk Front to the south, or on the Soviet left. Guderian's job was the destruction of the Soviet soldiers of the Bryansk. To the north of Guderian was Hopner's 4th Panzer Group, and above him was Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group. Altogether, they presented a threatening front of 400 kilometers, or 240 miles. The Soviet defensive line was much longer than this. Prudence demanded it be so. But the line only had to break in one place before chaos ensued for the Russians. Bach wanted the 3rd and 4th Panzer Groups to encircle the Soviet defenders within the Yasma region. This was along the main road from Smolensk to Moscow. It was also on the German left flank, and so closest to the target city. Guderian to the south, on Germany's right flank, asked for and received permission to start his attack two days earlier, on September 30th. Bach believed that Guderian was so far south it would not affect the major contest of the center and left of his line. Everyone else launched Typhoon on October 2nd, per Hitler's directive. It was probably luck, but Guderian managed to hit the enemy line in front of him with his 47th and 24th Motorized Corps just as they were about to launch their attack. And, as this was not a part of the Soviet plan, the five armies in the area retreated. General Umenkov could not do anything to stop his men. There was now a hole in the Soviet far left, and in it was an armored German wedge. By sundown of September 30th, Guderian's tanks had gone some 20 kilometers, or 13 miles. To make matters worse, the local Soviet commander told headquarters that this was only a diversion, to get the Soviet center, part of the line, to transfer forces to them. It would all be corrected the next day. But on the next day, October 1st, Irmakov's counterattack failed. He had, like so many others before him, sent in his forces piecemeal along different lines, which negated any possible support. Nor did he have air cover, nor did he start his attack with an artillery barrage. This allowed Guderian to renew his attack. His 24th Motorized Corps penetrated another 80 kilometers, or 48 miles, towards Orel. Group Ormenkov was now cut off from the Bryansk front. The next day, October 2nd, Army Group Center proper attacked the Soviet line. Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group smashed into Lukin's 19th Army, and then Komenko's 30th Army, reaching 10 kilometers, or 6 miles, closer to Moscow. Meanwhile, Hopner's 12 divisions engaged and flung aside Sobienko's 43rd Army, advancing some 40 kilometers, or 24 miles. Then they engaged a part of the reserve force. Counterattacks were ordered up and down the line, but the Soviets moved too slow to engage the leading German tanks, who were already on the move. Even though the German left was closer to Moscow, 
It was the German right that concerned the Stavka, probably because it had started two days earlier. On October 1st, Stalin ordered the Reserve Front to send the 49th Army south to check Guderian, which left the Soviet center that much thinner. But if Guderian's panzers got past Orel without trouble, they could then turn north and make for a position just behind Moscow. It looked as if German professionalism would win out the day after all, and the backup capital at Kubyashev would be the home of Stalin and the Politburo very soon. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.